Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. I'm a vampire from outer space. In my life, I've had archenemies, nemeses, even some victims. Having fans is weirder than all of that. <laughs> this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Sequa.org, the best online location to get all your comic books, news, reviews, and critiques, buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. And remember, we are still on Patreon. Support smart criticism and comics. So, shall we go on to the news? I would like to start with what has unfortunately become a tradition at the Smorgasbord. Today, in our corner, which I have titled, People Death Took Before That Orange Bastard. Rest in peace, Adam West. The Batman. Keith DeCandido said something about this on his blog, and it's been just turning over and over in my mind ever since, which was that the thing about Adam West is that when I was growing up, he was the Batman. I distinctly remember, like, at 12, 13, 14, not really liking Michael Keaton because he took it so damn seriously. And I had to grow up a little bit to appreciate Tim Burton's darker humor. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and then I had that period of time where Adam West's Batman was embarrassing and it was campy and it was Batman is so serious, you guys. He's a millionaire who fights crime as Dracula. That's not a joke. That's something serious, guys. Sometimes, Tom, you just can't get rid of a bomb. Yeah. I had that period too, and then at some point though, when you're old enough and you look back on it, and you do get a sense of it just being, first of all, of the show being not particularly well done, but there's nothing wrong with camp. There's nothing wrong with a lighter Batman who goes to a bar and drinks orange juice and dances the Batuzi. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with... I, this is going to connect to another subject that we'll talk about later, but as a version of this character that's been interpreted and reinterpreted so many times... He owned that aspect of Batman. And even in later years, you know, this is someone who no one has a bad word to say about him. Someone who, to the very end, was like so appreciative of the role and grew to accept that, yeah, he's Batman. Like, that's just how it is. I think uh, because uh, when I grew up, where I grew up, he wasn't really a thing. I didn't see the TV show until I was like in my mid-teens, and that's too late to, I think, enjoy it as a child and too early to enjoy it as a as an adult. Yeah, as it were. So he wasn't to me a thing uh, in real time, only retroactively. For me, he is most interesting as an indicator as mainstream comics growing up, as in we had our sulk teenage period wherein we. We were all so angry at Adam West for ruining Batman. And every time somebody wanted to look at old, it was this beef pal, comics ain't just for kids anymore article. And when mainstream comic sort of, kind of, almost grew up, it became okay to admit, yeah, we like it. Like, it's fine. It, it wasn't a mistake. It was a Batman and it was funny. It was an intentional comedy, not unintentional one. And it becomes okay to admit it. So for me, it represents something, his Batman, not like the man, I didn't know the man, but his Batman and the way we relate to it represent a shift in the way uh, mainstream comics thinks about itself. Because I, I still, I do remember 
for a short while when I got on the internet, people really hating the idea of Adam West Batman. And as time goes on, it became more and more accepted to say, I love it. Yeah. I think part of it is also none of these interpretations of the character exist in a vacuum, right? There's always the idea that Adam West's Batman was maybe not palatable or acceptable at a point in time where people really wanted comics to be taken seriously. You know, we, the readership, did not want to be seen as the comic book guy. Ironic though that may be given today's circumstances and today's fandom. There was this desire for, like, could you just leave the jokes and the stereotypes out of it and treat comics as though it is a form of literature and you know, acknowledge that. And the more people tried to reach for that, the less acceptable Adam West's Batman was because Adam West's Batman embraced all the silliness of the Silver Age, right? This was a show that had death traps where they would be transformed into living surfboards or buried in uh, Egyptian urns so that a guy who thinks he's Tutankhamun can, uh, you know, hypnotize them into dancing as Corchester's ridiculous stuff. I remember one episode, the cliffhanger is that Batman, Robin, and Batgirl are tied into a human knot that is designed to kill them the more they struggle against it. And it looked like something out of the Kama Sutra. That you couldn't invent stuff like that, right? That's what the Silver Age was. And for a time, I think we had to set that aside in order to be perceived as something more than the bargain basement, the dwellers in darkness, as it were. Some people never grew out of that, unfortunately. But now I think Batman has become so extreme in the other direction, right? We've gone so far past even the animated series, which was dark, but at least Kevin Conroy had like some humanity in his inflection. You go past that to Christian Bale and you go past that to Ben Affleck. They're robots. You know, Batman in the comics today is barely a human being. In that contrast, you know, when you look back at Adam West, you're like, here's a person, like, you could at least believe he was a human being. Corny as it might have been. Okay. Uh, speaking of Batman, there was some other Batman-related issue you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so this is a really weird one. I appreciated your perspective on this to the point where I did want to bring it up in the episode. We, we talked about it before the episode. <laughs> it's not a time job, dear listeners. No, no, we're not cheating you out of content. We're just like saying this has been discussed, but I do want it on the record, right? Out of the freaking blue. And maybe, I don't know, this might have been in response to Adam West. I have no idea. Joel Schumacher came out of the woodwork and apologized for Batman and Robin. This movie came out in 1997. It is the year of our Lord 2017. So some time has passed. Now, one of the things that I said at the time, you know, obviously the first initial reaction to Schumacher's apology was people heaping scorn on him for like, good, you should be sorry. And the thing is, when you think about it, yes, the Schumacher films were terrible. This is known. It's kind of like what we were talking about with Zack Snyder uh, last episode where we said, you know, if you don't like those films and there are reasons not to like them, we have all had a lot of time to articulate that, to process it, to take it apart, to really make our case in a convincing way and talk about the evidence and the counter-arguments. It's all been done. I don't know why Schumacher brought it up here, but the thing is, Batman 
as a cinematic entity, let's set aside the TV shows because otherwise we're going to be here all day. Cinematically, this character has been rebooted twice since Batman and Robin. Well, we can also include Lego Batman. You know what? You're absolutely right. He won. He has a movie. You are absolutely 100% right. Three times then. And I feel like even if that is a concept that people are having difficulty with, we can accept 50 different versions of Batman or 52, I guess, in the comics. We can do the same in the films and say, okay, you know, Schumacher's Batman with the nipples and the ass and the groin shots, fine. It is what it is. I don't understand why we're still holding on to that. I had two points when this thing came out. The first of which is, in 1997, it might have been the worst superhero movie of all time. And I say might have been because this was still already came and went. And Superman 4 Quest for Peace already came and went. So even then, there was this, maybe not really. But we're in 2017, and we've survived Fan 4 Stick, and Suicide <laughs> Squad, and Batman v Superman, and the Catwoman movie, and the Electra movie, and two Ghost Rider movies. And if you want to contrast it to them, Batman and Robin is Citizen Kane, because it's a crap movie. But at least I can see what happens on the screen every single moment. Unlike Suicide Squad, which is edited by, I don't know, a deranged criminal trying to take revenge on David Ayer. <laughs> it's not bloated with self-importance like Fantastic Four, which really, really doesn't want you to know that it's a comic book movie. And it's like, no, 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 we're not superheroes. We're serious science fiction movie about guy who stretches and guy who catches fire and lady who disappears and has a bad wig. And mind you, that's even before talking about the old Fantastic Four movies where Jon Gruffat, that poor man, had to dance like with stretching hands and women and it was so awkward. In context, in terms of 2017, it's no longer close to being the worst comic book movie, even if you narrow it down to superhero comic book movies. Yeah, I think honestly, like that's the connective tissue that I see between Adam West and Joel Schumacher in that at the time they came out, these were definitely things that I think a lot of fans felt threatened by because if you took them at face value and said, this is what you do, right? This is what you're reading, that these films were somehow... And again, like, Batman and Robin came out in 1997. This is after Frank Miller. Oh, yeah. Batman yes. was not being written like that in the films. The Batman that you see, you know, George Clooney's Batman and Val Kilmer's Batman were not Batman at the time. In fact, now that I think about it, 1997 would have been after the whole thing with Bane breaking his back, right? I think it's no man's land already. Oh, so that's like peak bad darkness, right? For that period, at least. So I think there was sort of this idea of wanting to be perceived as serious work, and then you have... Batman and Robin and Batman Forever, which were, like, they weren't. You look at Uma Thurman's performance, Dancing as a Giant Pink Gorilla, Arnold Schwarzenegger with all his ice-related puns. Like, these were not movies that you were meant to take seriously. They were very toyetic movies. Uh, the big problem with the second Burden movie with Batman Returns is that they gave him carte blanche because the first one was such a huge success, and he made a movie that they couldn't sell toys to because kids would come out and be like, Mommy, what was that? And you couldn't take them to Burger King to get the 
your penguin toy because nobody wanted that. No kid, like there, there were plenty of adults, I think, but no kid wanted to play with Danny DeVito's penguin. And so Schumacher came in and his mandate was basically make it toyetic, make it mainstream, make it bright and colorful. And he did that. And a lot of people forget that Schumacher made other movies, some of them very, very dark. He did uh, Going Down, which was a very depressive, like, post-90s, what does a man do in this world which loses its values? And he did 8mm with Nicolas Cage, which was a very dark, disturbing thriller. He's not dead. He's not camp. I don't think that anyone ever made the argument that Schumacher was, like, that his entire filmography is represented in Batman and Robin. I think it's more the idea that those films particularly were so jarring at the time. And again, like, I have no idea what provoked this apology. Like, Adam West never apologized. Why should you? Okay. And the other thing that I talked about when we talked about it before the recording is that there was, and there still is, a hint, at least, of homophobia in the way comic book critics at the time and up until this day uh, treated Joel Schumacher's movies. Because there is more than it's a bad design to the idea of the bad nipples and the, you know, the first shot focuses on his ass. There is some hint of, you can't do that. Batman's not, Batman's not for you to sexualize. You're not allowed to do that. It was definitely there. And we've talked about Batman the Animated Series, which at the time, a few years later, they did the episode where the kids talking around and swipe stories about Batman and they have like different versions. Legends of the Dark Knight. Yeah, there was the 1960s Adam West Batman and then they did Frank Miller's Dark and Greedy Batman and then they had the animated, like the real Batman. Yeah, I think there was also like one that was... Horror or something? Like it was no, a no, robot no, Batman or something? They mentioned, one of the kids mentioned, you know, he maybe is a real vampire, which was supposed to be uh, Batman slash Dracula Red Rain, which was pretty popular at the time, I think. The miniseries. But they have a short scene with this kid whose name is Joel. The other kids call him Joel. And he swishes around in the lamppost and he has like a mink fair on him and he say, oh, I love Batman. All those muscles and rubber. And they tell him like, shut up, Joel. And at the time, it was funny, but now when you look at it, it's just mean and kind of gross. I hope that if they were doing the same story today, they wouldn't do that. There is a difference between saying this movie is bad, and there's a difference of saying this movie is bad because it appeals to the campier, quote-unquote, gayer elements, and Joel Schumacher is a gay man. Oh, just so many layers. (laughs) So many layers here. Okay, there's the problem of this movie is actually bad. So it's okay to criticize it, but when you focus your criticism on those elements and you, you know, someone who works for for DC Comics, for Warner Animation, present Joel Schumacher like that? So here's the thing. You brought that up and I was like, I need to think about this, right? Because that's a really, really layered and complex thing. I think on the one hand, it's not that Schumacher being gay led to people projecting something into the film that isn't there. The bat nipples, he brought them in, right? That's not something that people invented. He chose that. So when people are focusing on that, you know, that was a deliberate decision that Schumacher made. You could certainly argue about the different 
possible motivations he as a director might have had for that. But also, right, take into account that when you think about Batman and Robin, that is the thing that almost killed superheroes, right? That's Frederick Wortham. So he brings in Chris O'Donnell, who, despite looking 30, is running around in tights, right? It was the generic bat armor at the time. Sure, but you had the ass, you have the, the, the groin which shots. Is, and, okay, which is, it's his vision for Batman. And that's fair, but I think part of the backlash against that might in fact be, it's not that he chose to sexualize Batman in the way that Denny O'Neill does, right? Denny O'Neill has always has to have him shirtless with a mask on so that he can screw Talia and have babies with her, right? The masculine man. But the thing is, when you invoke that specifically in the context of Batman and Robin, you're calling up the ghost of that old fuck Wortham who very nearly destroyed this genre in its infancy because of his crazy ass ideas about Batman and Robin, right? Things that to a critical eye today, if you read Seduction of the Innocent and you read the, the comics that were coming out at the time, you're like, you would have had to have a couple of screws loose to reach the conclusions that Wortham did. And I've, I've talked about that before. Like, it's a complete misreading of the books. But the thing is, you can't deny that that is also part of popular culture, right? The underlying assumption of Batman and Robin, the ambiguously gay duo, and the campiness and unintentional innuendo of the Adam West series is also part of it, right? They're sliding down the bat pole into the bat cave and all that. So you have all of this in the cultural consciousness and there's no way Schumacher didn't, maybe he didn't watch the Burton movies. Maybe he didn't know like the specifics of Batman at the time. All fair and good. Directors don't have to do that. But there's no way this guy accepted a deal to do Batman Forever and Batman and Robin and did not know that in popular culture, the idea that they're a gay couple is kind of a joke. And then all of a sudden he's like, let's show all the nipples out. And you have Nicole Kidman going like, black rubber. Ah, You remember that scene, right? With Val Kilmer. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, there's a scene in when he goes to her balcony and she's like in the negligee. And she's like, oh, you know, I like all this stuff, but I also like black rubber. And then he says, try a fireman, less to take off. Oh, okay. That's Which is a funny joke. joke. That's actually a great joke. It's a funny joke, but it's also like, you know, there was a perception, and you could argue that point, that he was dragging this Okay, character. but there's a difference between people reading into it and saying, oh, okay, so... He's making Batman into something gayer. And people getting really hateful towards, oh, he's making Batman gayer and we hate it. And most people didn't just outright say it. I, I, it's the world, it's the internet. I s- assume some people actually came out and said it. But there is a subtext to, that, to the response to that movie. And to this insistence 20 years now of hatred specifically... For Towards that, and I'm sorry, we had bad superhero movies before. We had worse superhero movies. Then nobody hunts the people who did Electra for what is it, ten years now more? And Electra, I'm sorry, Electra is worse. People say, "Oh, David, there is a bad director," but nobody hunts him now. Nobody comes after him like, "Apologize, David, there, apologize for Suicide Squad." I have a theory about that. I can't prove it. It's not something that I can substantiate, but I think there are two specific examples I can think of of people who dodged 
very heavy criticism where Schumacher didn't. First of all is, you know, Halle Berry and Catwoman. The second one really is David Ayer. But I think in David Ayer's case, he openly claimed studio interference. And people know that. So now you're looking at it and you're like, okay, Suicide Squad is a garbage movie. Is that David Ayer's fault or is that Warner Brothers? We don't know. Because they never specifically came out and said this movie is a mess. It's the same with uh, Age of Ultron. You know, we don't know what Disney did and what Whedon did in response to that to make the movie what it ultimately became. And the thing with Halle Berry is, you know, I, I'm not a fan of hers as an actress, but she got up on that stage at the Razzies and thanked her agent for casting her in this garbage-ass movie. I think that earned her back the respect that she would have lost for Catwoman specifically, which, again, Catwoman versus Batman and Robin, at least Batman and Robin had Uma Thurman. Batman and Robin... Again, I'm saying it, it's not a good movie. It's flat. Most of the jokes aren't funny. And it's directed in a very inartful way. But unlike so many blockbusters these days, and I'm, I'm a movie critic in Israel, so I've seen, over the last two months, I've seen one terrible movie after another. But I've seen stuff like Alien Covenant and King oh. Arthur Legend of the Sword and War Machine and many others and unlike those movies i can tell you 20 years since batman and robin since i've seen it what this movie is about and why the characters do what they do and i can tell you actions that have happened and explain them because i can understand them and it's almost sad that blockbusters came so low over the last 10 years and the way we edit them and the way we shoot them and the way that everything is thought about, not in terms of a movie, but in terms of a franchise, because Batman and Robin is at least a movie with a beginning, middle, and end. And yeah, they introduce Batgirl, but nobody says, oh, you have to watch the Batgirl movie now. It's just, oh, here's Batgirl. If it came out today, you know, they would just hint at her and like, if you want to watch that, get ready for the Batgirl movie, the Batman Cinematic Universe. Oh, here's Robin. Well, the Red Hood movie coming soon to a theater near you. But it doesn't matter because it's going to bomb and nobody's going to watch it. So they'll just reboot it anyway. That's what they're doing now, right? That Suicide Squad starts with a cameo of The Flash. That's not a coincidence. Yeah. So I'm saying, if you're still angry at Batman Robin, find something better to be angry about. The world is full of reasons to be angry. That's not one of them. And if you're hateful towards Joel Schumacher because he made... One crappy movie 20 years ago, maybe consider why are you hating specifically Joel Schumacher? Yeah, it's something that calls, I think, for, again, you know, I'm making this parallel because I do think it's it's extremely relevant, like Zack Snyder, right? I don't think that these are contentious issues. I don't think that anyone would stand up and say that Batman and Robin is a wonderful film that's been misread all these years. The film has problems, but everyone... Everyone, every movie critic from here to eternity, every comic book fan, everyone has had an opinion about this movie, has said their opinion, they've talked about it. All of this discourse is already out there. Relitigating it now just seems like for what? Honestly, like, I'm not even sure what prompted Schumacher to do this. He should have just stayed quiet. Nowadays, yeah, it's the unspoken truth that, okay, fine, Batman and Robin wasn't great. But I think today most people are concerned about the Snyderverse. 
and what those movies are and, you know, what does it mean that Wonder Woman's getting this tremendous reception? Is Patty coming back? Tell us about Patty. Now Ava DuVernay is all of a sudden getting interested in superheroes again. It's like, there's all of this discussion about things that are happening now. Batman and Robin is three reboot cycles in the past. We don't need to talk about it anymore. We really don't. The only time I was happy to see a reference to Christopher Reeve this week is because someone did a photo manipulation of him and Adam West shaking hands in The Great Beyond. That was all I needed to see. In costume, they shake hands, that's it. Uh, speaking of the Black Panther movie, uh, the teaser trailer came out. It did. I really liked it. I won't say immediately, oh, it's different, it's a game changer for Marvel, but... The sense of design of it all was different. It was very much, as people said, based on ideas from Afrofuturism and such, which is something that the Marvel Universe didn't do up until now. And in general, blockbuster movies, I don't think in America ever did something like that. Afrofuturism specifically. So at least it's going to look different in terms of the environment. I'm not sure in terms of photography and directing and such, because if there is one criticism that we hear again and again towards the Marvel movie, is that they're very samey in terms of how they look. Most of them, not all of them. But it, uh, it looks good, and I really like that it's based specifically on elements from the Christopher Priest one, which is still my favorite thing Black Panther related. Not that there's that much of a competition, really. And there was a lot of uh, shots people did on Twitter of the people working behind the scene of the movie, the designers and the costume and the makeup people, and most of them are African or African-American. And, hey, when you put different people from those that you usually see behind the camera, you'll get a different movie, something that you might have not seen a million times before. What a shock! What a novel approach! Exactly so. The teaser trailer so far, I liked it. And I hope it's going to be a good movie. You know who's not sure about the movie though, Tom? Who? Marvel Comics. Because. Yes. You know what? I'm not going to bag on them too much for this because that horse has really been beaten down to the kind of glue that kindergartners eat. But, suffice to say, Marvel have announced the cancellation of World of Wakanda, or rather, I should say, Roxanne Gay announced the cancellation on Twitter because Marvel, after all, does not care what their readers know or don't know about the books they're reading. And when you told me that, I was, Sean, we've talked about the cancellation of the Black Panther spin-off last episode, and, you're, and you said, no, 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 it's a different one. And I said, I didn't even know this. They're so bad at promoting this. To recap, there was Tanegisi Coates, core book, which is 12 issues long. There was Roxanne Gay's spin-off, World of Wakanda, which was meant to focus on the lesbian couple... The Dora Milaje. Yeah. The, of the Dora Milaje. And there was Black Panther and the Crew, also by Tanahisi Coates, also cancelled in their first arc. Now, friend of the podcast, Macklin Sorowich, pointed out, and correctly, that there probably isn't a lot of communication between Marvel Comics and Marvel Studios. It's highly unlikely that they timed it so that the teaser trailer hits, everyone gets hyped up, and on the same week, Roxanne Gay's like, oops, they canceled the series. However, Axel Alonso and his band of bald-headed morons are, after all, aware of the fact that Marvel is working on a Black Panther film. They have apparently given up any hope at 
all of any kind of synergy. Because it boggles my mind, Tom. When they flooded the market with these three titles, we called it back then, right? When these things turned up on the previews, you and I sat on this show and said, there is no way these books are going to last more than one arc because they're all coming out at the same time. No one has hyped any details about them whatsoever. And quite frankly, they're getting lost in the shuffle of all of these universe-spanning events anyway. So who's reading them in the first place? Oliver Sava, the AV Club's comic critic, noted... That as of the August solicits, DC has yet to cancel one Rebirth title, and Marvel can barely keep any book, including those by best-selling author, going for more than a year. They're in freefall. We know this. That horse is dead. It is an X-horse. But this specifically... X-horse? Hmm. It... Oh. There's a spinoff for you. Marvel, uh, I know we bang on you, but if, <laughs> if you want me to write X-Horse in which, I don't know, Better Ray Bills joins the X-Men because he's a mutant now, I guess. Sure, why not? Give me a call. Seriously, you'd work for them? To write X-Horse starring Better Ray Bill, I will work for Satan. No, see, I will put this out into the universe so the world can hear me. Marvel can kiss my ass. What this cancellation demonstrates, I think, is something that we've talked about before. And I don't think that it was ever, you know, when we talked about Marvel's practices in the past, it was always in terms of theory and conjecture. This, I think, is a blatant demonstration of the fact that when they talk about diversity, when they talk about the importance of representing minorities, of equality, of tolerance, of showing other kinds of people, other kinds of voices. Let's not forget that Coates and Gay were like the only black writers at Marvel, aside from David F. Walker. And she's gone now, and he's on his way out, so there's that. It's just so mercenary. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Nothing that they did this week, I think, or last week. They launched an Iceman solo title. That book won't last 12 issues. Pretty sure that's their only LGBT lead because Angela's gone too. And uh, America and... It doesn't spring from any kind of ideological stance that they take because they have no ideology. These people will do whatever they think will get them sales. They don't care about equality. They don't care about women. It doesn't matter to them. From their perspective... The importance of an African-American or Afro-Latino Spider-Man is on the same level of a character has died, let's milk it for sales. The death of Wolverine. It's a stunt. If it works, they'll keep it going. If it fails, they're not going to try to find an audience because it matters that this character is there. They'll be like, nope, doesn't work, goodbye. Coates and Gay, and unfortunately, you know, they were lauded and praised and hyped when they joined Marvel because it was meant to be a response to the criticism that Marvel did not hire writers of color. And then all of a sudden, here they are, you know, start singing the Miss America theme. They're going to write all these books and it's going to be Black Panther in time for the movie. And here we are, not six months later, two out of three are canceled. The third one's on its way out. What possible alternate conclusion could anyone come to to defend Marvel at this point? Speaking of diversity, equality, tolerance, and people who have none of those things, this is going to get ugly, Tom. It was already ugly, Sean. It, it was ugly as hell, and, you know, 
Helen of Troy's face was so beautiful, it launched a thousand ships. This face is so ugly, it's going to sink them. Here we go. Last week, the first issue of Howard Chaikin's Divided States of Hysteria came out from Image. During Pride Month, with Image A launching it with an alternative cover, a Pride Month variant, and B with Image changing their Twitter handle to the colors of the rainbow and announcing their support to all things LGBTQ. Context matters. I'm saying if it came out a month before or a month later, it would have been not as terrible. But go on. Uh, well, would it have been as terrible? Just to pause on that point very briefly, I think it would have been because I don't think Chicken planned that. That had to have been a marketing thing where, like, they, the book comes out that depends on the publisher. It's got nothing to do. Chicken wrote it, sent it out to get drawn. Oh, well, he drew it. Never mind. Send out the comic. Image decides when it goes to the shelves or not. The fact that it fell on Pride Month was sort of the cherry on this shit sandwich. So basically, this being Howard Chaikin, I don't think anybody had high expectations to begin with. But Kel Supri's controversy erupted when uh, one of the early scenes in the comic depicts the violent uh, sexual assault of a transsexual prostitute who, by the way, for those of you who have heard about the controversy perhaps but not the details, uh, said prostitute is also an admitted child molester who refers to women as fish and talks about, and I quote, social justice identity politics, which honestly, at this point in the discourse, anyone who uses those terms is really just broadcasting on all channels exactly what they're about. Those aren't words that mean anything except to very, very specific types of people. Now, Sean, 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 I, I do believe that you are now virtuous signaling, which is, as we all know, is the worst crime of all. It's like virtuous signaling... Genocide, murder, uh, being nice on Twitter, those are all crimes, Sean. Tom, I went to the barber today. My neck is free and clear, and I can say whatever the hell I want to. So, here's the thing. That terminology is super ironic considering what Chaikin did later, but I'll, I'll build up towards that. Now, this issue hits, and people did not take it well. One voice of particular note, from my perspective, was Max Visagio, who is, of course, uh, a writer at Black Mask, writer of Kim and Kim, Quantum Teams Are Go, and so on. And she went on a very harsh Twitter tear, arguing, first of all, as you said, Tom, what a thing to put out during Pride Month. Second, this whole cliche of the trans sex worker is so ugly and boring and in the context of the issue, you can tell that the only reason it's in there is because Chaikin wants to be quote-unquote edgy. There's no other context that this makes sense in. And Chaikin, of course, did the most tone-deaf, inept thing that a Grandpa Simpson stereotype like him could possibly do, which was to write a long, rambling letter, terms and condition length, right, New Testament length letter about politics, how he's been victimized, liberal narcissism. It's not even a letter, it's just the uh, editorial from the end of the issue. Because there is an editorial towards the end of the issue where he goes on a rant about the same thing. So he, he courted controversy, he got it. What a shock. Visagio was coming from a very specific place as, and she said this, right? As a trans person who, factoring in her age, 
you have to assume has pretty much grown up in a popular culture where the overwhelming representation of who she is is dead hookers on Law & Order. That's the primary mode of representation. Obviously, this was something that upset her, and you can argue, understandably so. In contrast to that, Howard Chaikin is a crusty old man whose claim to fame is American flag with two Gs, which came out 30 years ago. This is someone who claims to be a leftist in that long-winded rant of his, but I swear to God, Tom talks like a Reddit neckbeard with all that SJW bullshit. He uses the terminology of people who created Gamergate. I have to make this argument because it is self-serving, and I will admit to that, right? I do believe that writers are inherently free to write about any subject, even if it's not necessarily a lived experience for them. Me being a writer, yes, that is completely self-serving, and I cop to that. But if Chaikin was going to respond to this, what he needed to do was explain why he thought this was necessary. And I'm going to remind you, Tom, this is the thing that Mark Wade failed to do with Strange Fruit for Boom. You want to portray someone else's suffering that's got nothing to do with you, and you don't want to be criticized for it, have the decency to make a case for why you should be exempt from criticism. What are you bringing to the table? I think the expectation of not being criticized at this day and age is full-heartedly. You're going to get criticized by someone. The internet is a large place. People are going to see your work. People are going to have an opinion. You And your freedom to write, like you said, anything you want, which exists, is A, as we've mentioned several times before, does not mean that somebody has to publish you. And when Eric Stevenson at Image said, yes, this is to be published in our company, he made a decision. It's not just something that happened. And B, your freedom to write is the freedom of everybody else to tell you that your writing is crap and bullshit. For people who have a clear head on their shoulders and can see things as they are, the question is always, what criticism is valid, right? What criticism is drawn from things that actually exist in the text. And what is excessive knee-jerk reactions? We were just talking about Joel Schumacher, right? How much of that criticism is genuine versus how much of it is overblown because of the nature of the internet? Chaikin, for him to do this, the only way that that could have been ameliorated somehow or, or, or anything like that would be for him to make a case as to what he's bringing to the table. You're invoking a really old, really ugly stereotype that is getting people killed in the States today. If you're going to do that, I need you to explain to me why. And another part of that, by the way, is Image got dinged for this as well, because it happened as they're celebrating Pride Month with variant covers, and Eric Stevenson made a fool of himself, dismissing all the criticism towards Chaikin, saying about, oh, we're starting a conversation. And on top of that, as Alexis Sergio pointed out on Twitter, Image has apparently never had a trans writer working for them. That's part of it, too. One, two, three. The last creator that I can think of is really it's Sophie Campbell when she did Glory, and that's a, five years ago, and B, she was the artist. Sarah Horrocks had two pages on Island, like one uh, short piece. That's it. I don't follow the Bitch Planet anthology uh, one-shots, the triple features. I think they had trans creators on them. I am not sure, though. Well, the fact that we're not sure in the... Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a fact. 
Now, since I've mentioned Sarah Horrocks, I just want to point out she had her own take on the issue, which I found very interesting. And she said that the issue as a whole, she didn't like it and she thought it was stupid and bad and whatever. It was shaken. Of course it was. No, no. She's a shaken fan, by the way. Uh, Old shaken fan, at least. Uh, But the trans scene, she said, it's bad, but in the context of 2017's comics, it's almost progressive because it's presented from the trans character's point of view and when the male uh, clients say oh you trapped us you lied to us you you have a penis you're not a real woman she kills them and she fights them because she tells they know there is no such thing as a trap it doesn't make the issue good it doesn't make the scene as a whole something to be applauded it just means that situation is still so bad in terms of French representation that she can cling on to something like this and saying, well, it's not as bad as that issue of Airboy where they were just thrown aside. Well, that actually leads to exactly what I wanted to talk about with relation to image specifically and sort of the overall context here, which is I think there's a certain measure of leeway that writers can theoretically, I'm not saying this is always the case, but theoretically, there's leeway a writer can ask for when they make this kind of faux pas based on their past track record. Hypothetical situation, right? If if the gates of hell opened and Brian K. Vaughn suddenly wrote a really homophobic scene and then apologized for it, you could at the very least look at his past work and say, okay, what you just did, big mistake, but clearly you understand that that's a mistake because look at everything else that you've done. The people who did Bad Girl, they had the issue with uh, pretend Bad Girl. Yeah, the, the drag people, artist. Yeah, and people were very angry about that, but they apologized, and people looked at their past work and their future work, and they said, okay, you get why it was bad. Peter David. Again, not a great situation, and I'll never really look at him in the same way again, but this is someone who, for 20, 30, 40 years, was very vocal about basic humanity towards minorities in his own works. Chaikin does not have that record. Chaikin can't make the argument that what he's doing right now, and also like Chaikin fans, can't make the argument that he knows better because there's no evidence of that. To the best of my knowledge, he has never written a transgender character in anything other than victim, sex worker, the end. And that counts too, I think. Because, you know, we're talking about positive representation of the trans characters. Petricor on Saga, she's not the most morally upright character, right? We're talking about a convicted murderer. But, at the very least, this is someone who you can root for, who Vaughn takes great pains to humanize and to show events through her perspective and to make her part of the overall story. As we've said with the Black Panther, we're taking it back to that news. If you want trans representation done right, you should probably hire trans people to do it. In general rule, because image is... It's a bit of a boys club. It's a bit of, you know, those people who are already famous bringing in their friends who are also, in terms of comic book dumb, are also famous. And therefore, you need companies like Black Mask to present to you folk like Magdalena Vizio. Because because Image probably wouldn't have published her until she was already famous. You know, maybe if Kim and Kim gets an Eisner and she'll, she'll want to publish her next work there, there'll be saying, oh, oh, that Eisner winner, Max Visaggio, sure, sure, but they wouldn't have published her first work, Silent Scene. And that's why stuff like Island to me was so important, because 
it was a stage for people who otherwise wouldn't be at Image, big name creators. So maybe, maybe do something like that. The thing that amazes me here and like why I was so dismayed that Stevenson dropped the ball the way that he did was that, you know, even in the context of The Divided States of Hysteria is an image book, the values of that book do not jibe with what image has been putting out. I mean, yes, it is a bit of a boys club, but let's not forget that in the context of that boys club, they've had successful representations of trans characters. Island, right? The pervert. Braga from Rat Queens is also transgender. Like these representations have been made with an eye towards positivity and towards acceptance. And here comes a book that dives back into the cliches of the 1980s. Like, are we really doing the crying game again? Is that really where we're at still? And just to cap things off, because we can probably go on this forever and we shouldn't, it's also artistically a bad book. Because I, I've read page one. <laughs> I didn't bother finishing it until all the controversy. And then I said, well, we'll probably talk about it. But it's an ugly book. Uh, and not in, like, philosophically, it's meant to disturb you like shaky cane. It's just badly drawn, badly composed character work. And the coloring, it's by a guy called uh, Jesus Abuertov. And Sarah Horak, when I talked to her online, she told me that shaking is colorblind, which I didn't know. But that's explained so much because the coloring does not fit the art. And everybody just so static and boring looking. And the, the odd decision to juxtapose internet text on the page, like it's 2001 and he just discovered what the internet is. And <laughs> he probably has. Facebook posts. And it just muddles the water even further. People are jumping on to defend him in the name of freedom of expression. A, no, and B, choose a better hill to die on. Why is it always that they die on those hills? It's always the worst and the ugliest and, you know, the holy terrors. Usually I think it's just because there are people who share those prejudices and they don't want celebrations of those prejudices to be censured because then it's like, oh no, I can't read the thing where the tranny girl got punished. And it's probably something sick like that. Uh, shall we go on to actual decentish comics? Well, before we get to the comics, in the realm of reviews, there's something that I wanted to draw attention to. Okay. A fan group that calls itself Judge Minty. Oh, oh, right, right. Recently put out a 20-minute fan film of Strontium Dog, called Search and Destroy. Yep. And it looked good. I liked it. It's a 20-minute movie, and they call Judgmenty because they already had a short uh, fan film called Judgmenty years before. The prime screening of the Strontium Dog movie was actually at the 2008 40 Years Fest, which I was in, but A, it was full, and B, it was late, so I said... Uh, sorry, I gotta go, which a uh, bit of a shame, but it's online for free now. Just search, go to Google and seek out Strontium Dog fan film. It's the first result. We've talked about Strontium Dog before in the show, and it really catches, I think, the spirit of... It's not the epic Strontium Dog, it's not Rage or something like that, but it's a good middle-of-the-road uh, Strontium Dog story. You could see it as a story. They had Midden Face, they had Durham Red, they had the guy with the head on his knee. They went to like a lot of effort to recreate as much as they could the look. They cast like for the role of Johnny Alpha, they cast like a block of granite 
which is perfectly appropriate because that's who Johnny Alpha is. And, you know, the test that I always apply to fan films is when you get to the end of it, the question you have to ask yourself is, would you sit through two hours of this? And I have to answer yes in this case, because like you said, it wasn't an adaptation of any of the epic series, but I think this, you could almost see this as a proof of concept. I liked more because the action scenes are limited to fan film budget and fan film equipment, which it is what it is. And you sort of have to make excuses for it, but the small personal scenes Like the edited shot with them just sitting in the spaceship waiting to get to their destination and there's a series of quick cuts, they're playing card, they're working out, they're just sleeping. That was actually pretty lovely. When Johnny Alpha meets the villain, he has this chilling speech about, you know, how dare they send mutants after me. This land has been owned by my family for generations and you dirty mutants could dare come after me. That was good. That like good acting. Now, let me ask you this, Tom. Do you think that the carnivorous, friendly alien that turns up in the dungeon there, was that supposed to be the Gronk? No, 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 no. No, it's just some monster. It might have been in one of the stories that I didn't get a chance to read or that I've forgotten, but it was, there's enough generic monsters. If they wanted to do the Gronk, they would have done the Gronk, and those people are big fans, so obviously they wouldn't just take an established character and change it beyond all recognition. Mm. Good point. But uh, yeah, Search and Destroy, it's on YouTube. I strongly recommend it. Now we can talk about comics. <laughs> Because Sean hasn't seen Wonder Woman yet. I am so sorry. I it's okay. wanted I, to. I talked but... about it in my Hebrew podcast. I, everybody else liked it. I was very mesh about it, so I don't feel the need to talk about it again. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll let the world have its fun, whatever. So, what comic would you like to start with, Tom? Uh, you choose. Tell me about Kiss Vampirella number one by Christopher Sabella and a Paola Martello from Dynamite. Uh, I will tell you that this is a crossover story between Kiss, the band, and Vampirella, the skimply dressed vampire female from the planet Draculon. And it's not very good. <laughs> Okay, in, in terms of high concept, it's not a bad idea. Uh, in this version, it's the 1970s, and unlike many comics based on the KISS franchise, they're just an actual rock band. They're not space gods or monsters from another dimension or lost figures of the myth or whatever. They're just the rock band KISS coming to Los Angeles uh, to record their next album. And in this version, Vampirilla... While slaying the forces of evil in her free time, she's a guitarist in a rock band, Witchcraft. With a K. Yeah, with a K and some extra Ys, I believe. And she hires this girl that she saves from uh, just some douche on the street as her personal assistant to track down the forces of evil. And the two sides of the story don't actually meet. Kiss just... slowly encounter terrible supernatural things that might be coming and Vampirilla fights demons. It sounds like a good idea for a comic, like decent, like fun trash comics. But A, it's written in a very middling, boring, oh-hum, exactly what you're expecting kind of way. And B, I don't know who Ana Puella Martello is. 
but this story, this art is just not up to snuff. It's just there's so many weird angles of the shots of the panels that are almost if she had a camera and she put it in the distance and in the way that we look up to the face of the character so we can't see the actions and the fight scenes are all weirdly jumpy all over the place people just uh, look at page uh, 8 where Vampirilla fights this blonde guy and they break the most obvious rule of drawing comics that I can think of where on the first panel she's to his left and then on the next panel she's to his right he was to the wall and then we see her next to another wall and it's a very badly formed way to move those characters about because I have no idea where they are. Are they in, a, in an alley? In a club? How tall is he next to her? How hard did she hit him? I have no idea. I did want to ask you as the Smorgasbord's resident expert on heavy metal, Kiss. Yeah. I always get Gene Simmons confused with Richard Simmons. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> but my question is, like, the way that they're written in this issue, is that characteristic of how they're usually written in books like this? I haven't read that much of Kiss comics. Uh, Real-life Gene Simmons is a notorious slimeball, like a notoriously terrible person. And the comic, they're just like generic rock band. There is nothing... You have Kiss, who's a band whose all existence in real life is based on the idea that they are larger than life, right? They are demonic gods from another dimension. The Spaceman, the Catman, the, the Demon, and whatever the fourth one is. And here they're just guys. And they're not even crazy rock and roll, destroy your hotel, trash everything in sight. People. They're, just, they're just boring guys in a band who, for some reason, wear their makeup everywhere. There is no reason in story. If they were presented, not as supernatural characters, but at least as people who have this mystique about them, maybe, but Sabella does no effort. They're just in costume all the time because, well, it's a kiss comic, and that's the way you sell them with the makeup on. It's really weird, though. Really weird. Not weird in an interesting way, just weird in a, why would you do that? Like, what's the point of it? I couldn't really figure out the way that, like, what is it supposed to mean? Because it's really, really confusing. They go around everywhere with the face paint on. And I'm like, is that something that is characteristic of Kiss in fiction? Or is it something that this well, story in, is doing? In most fiction that I've seen, which is to say, I've read the first issue of the recent Dynamite launch by Amy Chu, was it? Which I didn't like. And they were presented there as those big mythical characters. And I've read Kiss Meets Archie, where they were creatures from another world. They were like a rock band from beyond our, our fairest mortal plane. And, and they were supernatural creatures, so there's a reason. And here, there is no reason. And they're not playing. They're not going to a concert. So, okay, they have to be in a makeup. They're just... Hanging around Los Angeles meeting old friends. It's such a dull story. And it's told badly, so there is no reason to buy it. You almost expect that something that involves Kiss and Vampirella specifically, who is like this can't be gothic, she would be the perfect cover girl for a Kiss album, right? If she actually existed. Uh, the covers for <laughs> the covers for the issue are 
not the greatest covers, but they at least have the mood that you're looking for in a story called Kiss Vampirilla. Yeah, but when you get to the actual story, it's sort of like, well, but there's no... Like, the theatricality of metal in general, right? Yeah. It's not good. It's not even good trash. It's just dull and workmanlike. Uh, but, uh, because Dynamite is Dynamite, there is another book in the genre of comic-based and real-life shock rock bands by Dynamite that came out in the very same week. Because scheduling be damned. Uh, Guar Orgasmatron, number one of four, from Dynamite. It's written by uh, Matt McGuire, who's a member of Guar, with Matt Miner. Uh, with art by Jonathan Brandon Sawyer, and also with Matt McGuire. Now, Sean, are you familiar with Guar? G-W-A-R. I know that they are a band. Okay, uh, Guar is basically the idea of Kiss or Alice Cooper taken to the nth degree. They're playing in monster costumes and the band has this really complex, involved, and yet at the time jokey mythology about they are alien monsters who came into Earth at the dawn of time and killed the dinosaurs and were freed when the icebergs melted. And they're band- Like Lordy? Mm-hmm. Like that Finnish band that won the Eurovision that year? More the so, orcs? More so. They, Guar makes Lordy look like Justin Bieber. And oh go, my god. And, and, they're, and they're a super shock rock band. When you go to a concert, you're promised to get covered in fake blood and fake worst liquids. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's for the angry 13-year-old me, as it were. Uh, I've listened to very few Guar songs at my time, mostly because... With them, it is about the show, right? It's about the videos. And they had, like, short, not TV movies, like, direct-to-video movies, starring their lead singer, whose Phyllis was stolen, and his name is Phyllis. I'm sorry, who's... Yeah. Who's what? Phyllis. Phyllis. It's Phyllis, Sean. His dong was stolen. <laughs> yes. I, be- I believe that was the plot. And it actually was nominated for a Grammy for Best Video Presentation in 1992. So, there you go. Okay. All right. So uh, they are a good fit for a comic book, and Guar Orgasmatron number one is basically what you expect from a Guar comic book, I guess, if you're in this uh, intersection of Guar fans and comic book fans, which I assume there are quite a lot of them. So this just takes the story of the band for granted. They are alien monsters. They're playing rock and... You know, their listeners worship them, but they also have, like, enemy monsters that come after them. And it's very much over-the-top violence and action and gore. And the jokes are pretty much of the post-Deadpool. Say something inappropriate, said something unrelated, and when all else fails, acknowledge that this is a comics. Again, if I was 13-year-old, I would probably find this the funniest thing ever. They have their... Coven of uh, female warriors, including Slymestra Hymand and Estrogenia Lugabius. I'm sorry, run that by me again? Slymestra Hymand, Guar Woman, Mistress of the Unplugged Deaths, and Estrogenia Lugabius, Guar Girl, Slymestra's, quote, companion, unquote. That is a lot of words, Tom. Yes, and they fight the evil Mr. Perfect, who comes out of nowhere and apparently is a character in the Guar canon, like one of their many, many 
cosmic enemies. And the, the problem with the comic, if you're not a Guar acolyte, things just sort of happened. And, oh, who's this guy? Who's that guy? No not, recap page, huh? No recap pages. And there's a subplot where they travel between universes. And the problem is that the comic is drawn over the, in an over-the-top way. So when they change, supposedly change artistic style... Because, uh, as one of the women says, when they move into the Rob Liefeld verse, oh, my boobs are getting bigger now. Wow. That's actually kind of clever. Though. Yeah, it, it would have been, but because the art is already over the top, you can't really see it. But, for what it is, it did what all the things that Kiss Vampirilla wanted to do, because it's saying, it's a comic about an over-the-top band. Let's make an over-the-top comics. Let's make it gory and violent and and stupid like unapologetically stupid idiotic comics about stupid idiotic people who play stupid music and indulge in terrible stupid violence let me ask you this is it better or worse than slayer repentless oh yeah yes yeah. so much better <laughs> because it, it has no pretension of any serious revenge story it just stupid fun which i think what guar is because slayer is supposedly a serious band for a long, long time. And Guar has never... Nobody, nobody, not even 10-year-olds, take Guar seriously as a band. They're a funny joke. That's, that's the whole point of it. And if you like that, it's fine. I wouldn't come back for the whole thing because, you know, $4 per issue, I have better things to read. Yeah. But is it an ongoing or a miniseries? Yeah, yeah, it's a miniseries, it's a miniseries, it's four issues. So at least they wouldn't abuse the, the notion too much, it's just, it's gonna start and it's gonna end, and if it's successful enough, I guess, in two years' time we'll have Guar kiss, whatever. <laughs> kiss the Guar. Uh, what's your next issue? I read Kill the Minotaur number one by Chris Pesetto and Christian Cantamessa, art by Lucas Kettner and Jean-Francois Beaulieu, uh, from Image. Not a whole lot of frills with this issue, I would say. It's a pretty straightforward take on the Greek myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. Uh, very straightforward. It's got a bit of a Hunger Games vibe to it, which I thought was interesting because I think it's technically accurate to the myth that, you know, these people were rounded up and thrown into the maze as sacrifices. There, there is no twist. It's not, it doesn't take place in modern times in an alternate universe. In the science fiction, they're all different. No, it just is the first chapter in the Minotaur myth. Which, to be honest with you, like, the fact that it's well executed, I think, gives it more leeway than if it had just been average, and then I'd be like, why is there no twist here? Usually I'm all about that, right? I'm about where is the twist and the high concept. Pesetto and Cantamessa seem to be playing it straight, but what they do is, you know, there's a lot of characterization here for Theseus and his friend, Daedalus gets a couple of uh, scenes, you get hints about Ariadne being part of this conspiracy, Minos' insanity, like there's a lot of character detail in just this first issue, which typically isn't the case when books, what I've noticed in all the time that we've done this podcast is that usually when a book is so vanilla that it doesn't have a twist, the writer is usually not talented enough by the same token to have detailed characterization. It's usually bland 
in both ways simultaneously. Here, the fact that there's no, you know, this isn't the future, it's not Midas Flesh, it's not a reinvention, it's not a retelling, Theseus isn't a woman, none of that. It is, as far as I can tell, an attempt to do the Minotaur story straightforward. But, you know, the characters are well-written. There's enough detail provided that you know who the protagonists are, you know who the antagonists are, you know, everybody has, like, their little moment to spotlight. It's competent. I really like their version of Theseus, which finds a balance between him being a genuine hero who wants to save his people from slaughter to just being a guy who really worries about what history will say about him. Because, obviously, his people hate him because he's the prince and he's the one who has to enforce the taking the victims to the Minotaur every year. And his people despise him and mock him. And he both wants to save them, but he also really, really hates that they gave him... Uh, what's the nickname they gave him? The Horror of Thebes. Yes. He hates it. And that's his one, one of the major reasons he decides to go. Uh, Lucas Kattner, who draws, who does the line art, he's the guy I don't think we've talked about since we did Witch Doctor. He was the artist on that. Mm, okay. Uh, this one doesn't give him as much to do. He was really good on Witch Doctor because he had a lot of interesting design work and environments to work with. But there is some really nice stuff. Can we spoil a story that has been told for over 1,500 years? Well, I'll say this much. Like, now that you're telling me that he was the artist for Witch Doctor, I'm remembering the scene of the bull, the yes. slaughtered bull at the very beginning. And I'm like, yeah, that's something that would have come out of Witch Doctor. Or, I can or, see the, or the head removal towards the end. That's also... It's a it's a good use of, of his ability to do gore, but keep it within story limits so it doesn't become the focus of the scene. It's just an element of it. When the king shows you the removed head and the gorged eyes, it's, oh, it's terrible, but it's not overpowering terrible. It doesn't call attention to itself. It's just, okay, here's the beat, and now we can move on because there's a story to tell. I liked it a lot, more than I thought I would, honestly, because when the solicitation was announced, you know, they didn't say that there was going to be any particular twist, so I thought, okay, you're just, you know, recycling the story. But I liked it, and I'm sticking around for more. I didn't love it. I think I might wait for the trade, but as you said, for something that is just, it's just a story that we've seen a thousand times, it's as good as execution as any, I would say. Yeah, I think the one difference that Passetto and Cantamessa might be doing here, and it doesn't happen in this issue, but I think they might be setting it up, is that there may be more of an emphasis on the victims this time. Like I mentioned, um, you know, like the Hunger Games format, I think that's what it might be. That Theseus and his friend are being thrown into this maze with a bunch of other people, and we're going to get to know them a little bit. Have you read the postscript, the afterword? No. Kill the myth. Did you know that First Blood is a retelling of Frankenstein? That's what they're saying, which is, are they aiming for something different? Because if that's their direction, something different will come by issue three or four, I would say. Possibly, yeah. Is it an ongoing or a meaning, by the way? Because if it's ongoing, how long can you keep the story? Well, that's the thing. I think it's deliberate that we don't see the Minotaur. I think there may be some kind of twist that wasn't revealed in the first issue, but that they have planned in advance because it's highly... Like, we all know what the Minotaur looks like. 
Theseus, the labyrinth, we know this stuff. The fact that they made the conscious choice not to reveal him in the first episode, maybe there is some kind of trick here. Have you read uh, Mark Z. Danielewski's House of Leaves? Not yet, because unfortunately that book defies electronic reading devices. Oh, yeah. And so it can only be read in print. Uh, in case you haven't read it, it's a fascinatingly post, post, postmodern book about a video of a family who lives in a house and in the house there is something that might or not might not be an avatar of the idea of the Minotaur, of the horror in the center of creation. And the book is presented as the notes and the notes people have given to the video. And at certain points, the, the words in the book become a physical maze because there are footnotes on footnotes and there are different colors to the footnote to represent different ideas. And it's... After reading that, I was... Okay, I've already had the, the ultimate metaphorical experience of the Minotaur because when you read it, you think, okay... We've seen the story of the Minotaur. There is no way to make it interesting in a unique way. And then you finish the book and, oh, oof. I should really read it again. I really want to read it again now that I finished Kill the Minotaur. So I'll say this much. It's high up on my list. My only problem is because I am so used to reading electronically, the decision to read a print novel is kind of like a pain in the neck. It's sort of like, ah, I'll get to all, it eventually. It's also a massive, massive book. It's like... 600 pages of really dense writing. Oh, yeah. But I will get to it eventually because I love, uh, you know, those kind of postmodern games and layers of reality and, and all of that stuff. I'm super into it. I don't know if that's what this book specifically from Image is going to do, but I think they've left that option open so far. Okay. Uh, if you like postmodern games, you might enjoy The Bulletproof Coffin... Of the Thousand Yard Stare One Shot, uh, written by David Hine, drawn by Shaky Kane. This is sort of, kind of, maybe, might be a continuation of the Bulletproof Coffin series. There have been two miniseries. The first one just called The Bulletproof Coffin in 2010, which was about a guy finding a series of Golden Age comics. And, and starting to read them and realizing they're chronicling his life. And at the same time, he's sucked into them. And those books were written, by the way, by those two greatest of uh, Golden Age legends, David Hyde and Shaky Kane. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Who separated after a long dispute in the mid-70s when they were, their work was bought out by Big Two Comics. That was the name of the company, Big Two Comics. Portentious. Oh, yeah. And amazingly so. The second miniseries, uh, Bulletproof Coffin Disinterred, was just weirdly and wonderfully all over the place. It almost felt like a series of one-shots, which did all sorts of odd experiments with the genre. You have an entire issue of that, which was told via the medium of Mars Attacks, uh, like collectible cards. And an issue which was basically cut-up panels, and you had to could arrange them what, in whatever way you wanted. Really weird, wonderful stuff. Uh, the Thousand Yard Stairs is a bit back to the sources. Uh, this is a story of uh, famed comic book art Shaky Kane, Golden Age legend, who after years in seclusion get a chance to publish a new book by an alternative company called Imagine Nation Comics. Uh oh Oh, yes. And he goes to... Uh, 
And he goes to a Comic-Con where everybody ignores him because they only used to see him with David Hines. So it's a bit, it's more than a bit of a Liam Kirby riff. And Shaky Candy's like the bitter old man who's like, history has forgotten me and all you assholes don't really care about comics at all. And this is interspersed with scenes from the comic one that he drew for for the Comic-Con. Uh, Tale of the Hypno... Wait, what's the name exactly? I don't mind because... <laughs> Hypno Vampires from the Stars, in which one of his old hero teams up with a female cop. And there's this movie that screens post-hypnotic suggestions at people so that aliens can come in and suck their brains. But the hero falls... The hero within the story falls in love with one of the aliens while she sucks his brain out. It's... Oh, Sean. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot, Tom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a one-shot, 32 pages, but there's a lot going on. And Bulletproof Coffin in general, and this one-shot in particular, it has this thing that it dares you to read into it because there's a lot of elements that are obviously taken from real life. Kane and Hine here are Lee and Kirby, and Image Nation is Image Comics, and there's this whole idea of Comic-Con becoming a thing in which comics no longer exist. It's just a scene for cosplay and movies and all of those outside elements, but nobody really cares about the comics. But but at the same time, this is too obvious for the real-life Kane and Hine, because this would be like an old man mumbling, oh, kids those days, they don't care about the classics. Because their version of their own selves are bitter old men. Uh, Shaky Candy as a bitter old man and David Hine as a money-grabbing opportunist who doesn't really care about the artist, the artistry of it all. And it's all presented in... Have you ever seen the Shaky Candy comics? Have you ever read it? It's this weird, wonderfully flat, nihilistic style that makes the world ugly... Not unintentionally, that's what I said about uh, when we've talked about Divided States of America, which is a book that wants to be good-looking but just looks terrible. The Thousand Yard Stairs is ugly because it wants to look ugly. It has philosophical intention behind it. So it wants you to read into it, and at the same time, it sort of spits at your face of, why Why are you bothering? This is a comic. This is trash, and we know it's trash. But it, But is it trash, though? It's a fascinating work for me. Uh, it's not as good as, uh, The Bulletproof Coffin Disengared, which to me was a high point of comics of 2012 and might even be of the last decade because they sort of connected back to those things I like about old comics, about everything and anything could happen. And they have, those people didn't know that there were limitations, so they wrote and drawn without limitations. So it's not like that. This is more of the first miniseries, metafictionally self-aware kind of thing. But it's still great. It's it's hilariously funny and a brutal type of book. I have a trade review. Okay, we'll finish with a trade review. Well, not so much a trade review, more a miniseries review. I would like to talk about uh, Gem the Misfits. This is the five-issue spin-off by Kelly Thompson, art by Jensen Ong. From IDW. This spins out of the previous, the penultimate storyline, I should say, in which the Misfits are dropped from their label due to the manipulations of the Stingers and their earlier rivalry with the holograms in the main series. As a result of that, uh, they have 
only two solutions to get their fame back, as it were, a reality TV show or a cruise line. Faced with these two options, naturally, they choose the uh, reality TV star angle, but... Oh, I love cruise lines. <laughs> it would have been an interesting uh, storyline, like, you know, a murder on a cruise line or something. I don't it's know. the love boat. Only it's hate. It's <laughs> the, the love hate boat, boat with the misfits. Yes. <laughs> the misfits performing on the love boat. Oh, my God. Captain Steubing would not be prepared for that. So um, here's the thing, though. There is a bit of clever irony on Thompson's part, which I'm going to kind of bag on her later in this review. So I want to start by saying she does a little something smart here. In the first issue... What happens is, you know, if you look at the old show, now this being an 80s cartoon, naturally characters usually only exhibited one dimension, right? So Pizzazz's thing in the original show is apparently like, she wants to be famous. The only thing she cares about is fame. She will chase fame. She will do anything to get ahead. But the thing is that back then reality shows didn't exist as such. Here, it's such an easy way to fame that Pizzazz doesn't want it. Thompson's version of Pizzazz is like, she wants to be a musician, she wants to be famous for being a musician, and reality TV, she sees it as a distraction. Like, it, And her manager is trying to sell her on this idea of saying, you know, you'd get exposure and, and it would help your sales and you would be able to negotiate with a new label because nobody wants to hire you after all the problems you've caused. But it's like, no, not really, because she doesn't want to be a Kardashian. And that's an interesting fleshing out of sort of the template that Christy Marx created, you know? And, of course, as a result of the reality TV format, all the Misfits have to live in the same house, and all hell breaks loose. The format of the miniseries is basically five character pieces for the five members of the band. Okay. But, this is where I have to point out a considerable chink in Thompson's work here. Which I don't like to do, because, you know, the main series... I haven't read the final arc yet, but so far they've been... She has not lost any of her strength from the moment she started it with Sophie Campbell until today. The art's been getting a little icky, but the storyline has largely still been strong. This, though, there are some beats here that just don't feel right. She writes Pizzazz as being way too mellow and hugging everyone and we're going to be the best and it's going to be fantastic and positive and she defends Sormer from people who make fun of her for being fat and I'm like, not only does that not fit Pizzazz in general, but like that's not even consistent with how Thompson is writing her in the main series where in the last arc, she just sabotaged the holograms again. It's the problem of making the antagonist of one series into protagonist of another and not willing to write them as a villain-led stories, but just, oh, she's a hero now. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what's happening she, she's, here. She's the hero of her own story, and therefore she has to be niceified, I guess? Yeah, and, and it feels really artificial. Uh, Blaze has this turn of character like her arc takes a turn that happens way too fast and i think this also by the way might be like some kind of compression as a result of the cancellation because blaze makes a decision here that might have made sense if the main series ran on for another 12 or 15 issues 
as it currently stands, I'm like, wait, what the hell just happened? Two issues ago. Yeah, Jam has this weird situation, as we've mentioned before, and when we've talked about reviews, where the main series is ending, but they're launching two miniseries, one for the Jam, one for the Misfits, that take the whole crew into a more fantastic uh, type story, which is... A weird decision, I would say. It, it's a weird decision, and it might also be that the artificiality that I'm feeling from this miniseries might be in order to position the characters in such a way that when they get to that weird fantasy story, that they'll be like in the right places. But I'm reading this, and it's just like they're acting really out of character, which again, like it doesn't even make sense to me because it's still Thompson writing. So I don't know. I can't parse her thought process here. The other problem is that too many of the individual stories run on nearly identical tracks. Pizazz's issue. So you see her in high school and she was bullied and she, she lashed out very violently as a result of that. Three issues later, Roxy, same exact story. Roxy's father dies in her flashback issue. Next issue, Jetta's mother dies. And they both went to live with their aunts who were not particularly affectionate with them. I'm like, um, Kelly? Kelly? Did you press the copier button by accident? What What are you doing? This is like Kyle Higgins, that thing that he did with Boom. It's like, why are you telling the same story in two different issues? I don't, I don't understand. So yeah, it's to St. Ong's credit... She's not Sophie Campbell, but she's she's in the ballpark. The, the big know, the yeah, middle. the big problem with the other gem artist is those are some big big shoes to fill in term because it's it's not only that she was the first artist, her designs are still very for the characters still rule the series and the spin-off. So they have to work according to her very detailed and shiny obsessed uh mind. Emma Vichelli uh, who did the second arc? I think is my favorite of the non-Campbell artists, but it is it's it's just hard, right? Following Sophie Campbell is just it's, it might be too much to ask of people, I guess. Well, no, I, I want to be clear that you know the thing about Campbell, you're absolutely right, but at the same time, she's been gone for long enough that you just sort of go with it, right? If you're invested in the characters, if you're invested in the story that's being told. And, you know, you're still okay with what Thompson's doing. So it's like I un- inertia can sort of carry you over artists that are not as good and still be invested. And, like not, that and none, doesn't of them, necessarily... none of them is bad. I just want to make sure. That... Well, the one from the Stingers arc was a little... By the end of it, it was kind of, I don't know what this is anymore. I, I don't... It's, it wasn't bad. It wasn't... Mm, it wasn't as good. But it, I don't think... Because we've mentioned Kiss Vampirilla when we started the review section. None of them is dead. None of them is just bad. None of them just does bad composition, bad character work. Some of them are not as good as the others. Yes. Um, yeah, but I think like in this context, St. Ong is one of the better ones. But ironically enough, my problem here is not about the artist. It's more about like Thompson really using... And in fact, it's funny. In the last issue... Eric, you know, the, the heartless manager makes this comment about, you know, ugh, this is so saccharine, I can't stand it. And I'm like, that's kind of the, the miniseries. You know, Thompson went really, really overboard with, you know, how happy-go-lucky these characters are. I'm like, it's the misfits. She doesn't have them doing anything that's even mildly, like, 
what the misfits would do. You know, everything about them is like, you know, Pizzazz giving Stormer pep talks about her weight and Jetta promising to help Roxy learn how to read. And I'm like, yeah, I understand that Thompson wants these women to be in their own way as much a family as the holograms in order to make that parallel more successful. But I'm like, you're basically turning them into the holograms. It's kind of like you're... A, there's a lot of very special episode scenes here where like, you know, because Stormer is overweight and a lesbian, so she draws a lot of negative attention from idiots and Pizzazz is like violently defensive of her. And I'm like, Pizzazz? Is, you know, she, I, I don't know that she would go that far for, as Thompson wrote her in the, you know, in the previous arcs, this is someone who is a schemer and a glory hog and... Not someone who who gives inspirational talks, I think. The Misfits are characterized within this rebooted universe that IDW created, you know, they're villains that you root for because they're cool and they're edgy and they... They're not villains. They're the definition of antagonists. They are far more extreme than Gem and the Holograms. And when they are at cross-purpose, they would play dirty, but they're not... Unlike the... I like the cartoon version. They won't just murder Jem for no reason. <laughs> oh, they, they won't just throw her to bears and say, so well, count- they'll take care of her. So many counts of attempted murder in that show. <laughs> the, the, comic, the comics Pizzazz might not and probably would not save Jem from a bear attack. But she would not throw her into the bear pit. I don't remember if this was the first or second arc, but like at the very beginning, I think when Campbell was still around, they had this whole thing where Pizzazz sends, I think it's Clash to like sabotage the lights and Aja gets injured. Yes, yes. But the thing is that when that happens, Pizzazz is horrified. Like it wasn't supposed to go that far. So I understand that this is meant to be a more restrained version of the character, but I'm like... There's a layer of subtlety between that and between essentially making her Jeb, which I think is a mistake. Even in the context of you have to flip it around so that they're not the antagonists anymore, they're the protagonists of this story. But I'm like, even there, you know, you keep having those feel-good moments of I'll teach you how to read. Just because you're fat doesn't mean you're not beautiful. Uh, you're going to be famous. We're all fantastic. We're the best. I'm like, yeah, but... It doesn't click for me. I don't know. Something about it doesn't work. Which is disappointing, but uh, that's that's how it rolls. I, I have not read the final arc of Gem yet, so I don't know if this is something that happens there too. I'm reading it in issues, so the last issue is coming out as we record. So I'll probably read this on the weekend then. Well, we'll talk, and you, dear listeners, will not know my nefarious opinion unless we do decide to talk about gem as a whole at some point in the future possibly after infinite uh... i think after infinite it'll be worth it i think to do a bit of a retrospective because this is a series that has had some interesting developments not only like during its own run but in the context of what idw was when it started versus what they are now the change hasn't been like extreme. It's not image before and after Todd McFarlane, but it's, you know, th- there has been a bit of a shift, I think. So it'll be interesting to look at that. Okay, so these were this week's comics, and this was another episode of the Smorgasbord. Just a reminder if you liked it, you can find us 
on seekward.org, who you can support on Patreon. If you want to talk to me online, I am on the Twitter, at Tom Shops. Sean is not on the Twitter. If you want, you can send the carrier pigeon. Or yell at Tom. I'm sure I'll hear about it eventually. <laughs> oh, yes. Quite likely. So, this was it. I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time. Bon appétit. Thank you.